Welcome. I'm glad you're joining us today. Uh, I'm glad you've taken an hour out of your time to pursue Jesus. And, and man, whether you've been following him for decades or you're just still trying to figure out what you think about him, I'm glad you're here. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Sean. I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff at MCC. And, and, and we, as a team, we'd love to connect with you the, and, and pray with you this week. And the easiest way to do that is to text the word Monmouth, M-O-N, mouth, to the number 97,000, And from there, just follow as it texts you the prompts for the Connect card. There's a way to connect and for us to pray with you and to pray for you. And we'd love to pray with you this week. Uh, today, we're finishing up our series on joy. And all of these conversations are birthed out of a short passage in Galatians 5 that says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you can remember all the way back with me, to August 1st, we discovered that joy is a fruit, not a pursuit, that the greatest pursuit of our life is Jesus himself, and, and that the closer we follow him, the more he transforms us, and, and a fruit of following Jesus is joy. We talked about how the fruit of the Spirit are, as one theologian said, I love this, symptoms of being infected by Jesus. We discovered that true God-honoring joy is birthed not in our current circumstances that change, wither, and fade, but instead in unchanging historic reality that God gave his son for us. Two weeks ago, we looked at joy as a weapon. We talked about how joy defeats the lies of the enemy, that joy provides us the opportunity to either be a thermostat or a thermometer, to either react to the temperature of the room, the temperature of our circumstances, or to change the temperature of the room, to, to change the way we walk through our circumstances, and maybe even change the circumstances. We talked about how joy is always communal. Joy is never a solo event. Last week, so grateful, Scott shared with us about joy as worship. And can we just take a moment wherever you are to say thanks? Maybe just say a little prayer just for a moment to ask God to bless Scott and his family as a, as a sign of gratitude for his willingness to serve us in this way last week. Today, we're going to talk about joy for one final week to end up our four-week series. Remember, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'm not a huge fan of sermon titles, but here it is. Okay, This week, joy as a witness. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Acts 16 with me. If not, no worries. I'm going to read most of the relevant passages today for you. Acts 16. Um, Paul, who is one of the main characters in this story, is, is considered to be the greatest church planter 
ever. He spent much of his adult life traveling all around the Mediterranean Sea, planting churches. Uh, many of the churches that we know of the first and second century, the first 200 years of the church, were churches planted by Paul. Acts 16 tells us the story uh, of the birth of one of the most peculiar churches that, plant, that Paul plants that he's ever a part of. From Paul's perspective, this church plant is an unplanned church plant. I don't know if you've ever heard it said that there's no such thing as a surprise pregnancy to God. You may have been a surprise to your parents, but you were not a surprise to God. Additionally, there are no surprise church plants. The church at Ephesus was a surprise to Paul and Silas, but it was not to God. Paul and Silas, they, they end up there in Ephesus. They end up outside the city and outside the city, they meet this woman. Her, her name is Lydia. And Lydia is a wealthy Asian, Asian woman. Um, and, and God does God things in Lydia. And she gives her life to Jesus. Now Lydia's whole household becomes the first seed of this church that God's planting in Ephesus. Paul and Silas are out walking to pray after this event. And they begin to be yelled at by a victim of human trafficking. What is probably a junior high age girl. Through demon possession, it tells us, she's able to do miraculous things. There are men that are exploiting her misery for their financial gain. This is their industry. And Paul, for his part, he, he gets annoyed. Like I said, this wasn't a planned thing for Paul. He, he doesn't see it as a ministry opportunity. He doesn't feel compassion for a brokenhearted and exploited girl. He, he doesn't have a conviction to overturn an impressive system. He gets annoyed. This, this is not Paul's most shining moment. And, and let me tell you, that's a good reminder for us. Think about this. God can even use your broken, irritated, annoyed, selfish moments to bring life and freedom. Paul's um, irritation at this girl yelling at him leads him to jail, as we're going to see. But later, but later, Paul's rejoicing leads to freedom for him and for others. So, so Paul, he, he casts the demon out of this demon-possessed girl. And when he does, um, look at how the people respond to what happens. It says this, but, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. If you want to see people get angry, threaten or remove their source of income. We've seen it, right? We see it all the time in our politics today. It's it's a legitimate fear of theirs, of these men. As, as much as it was an industry that we would not support, what Paul did in casting out this demon was a real threat to the source of income for these men. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is disruptive. There will be things in your life 
that Jesus will be a threat to. There is a natural and valid fear that that arises when we allow Jesus control of our lives. He he says things, Jesus does, that that are scary. He he says things about retaliation. He he says things about your money. He he says things about loyalties and and who you serve. And, And he says things about how you spend your time. He says things about how you talk about other people. He, he says things about freedom and, and how you use it. He says things about control, about trust, about dependence. And if we're going to be honest, those things can be scary. When we're afraid, as these men were, we cover our fear with a more socially justifiable emotion, anger. You see, when you see someone angry, you, you, you can often ask the question, what fear are they masking with their anger? Maybe more awkward questions to ask this, when you're angry, what fears are you masking with your anger? So, so you see, they arrest Paul and Silas in their anger, in their fear. And they're going to be thrown into prison. But first, don't miss this. As if prison isn't bad enough. Look at the verse that leads up to prison in verse 22. It says this. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrate tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they'd struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. They beat them with rods. Think about this. In, in ancient times, when they wanted to kill someone with mob justice or, or what we would call lynching, um, it would often end up with a stoning. They would throw rocks at them, crushing almost every bone in their body until someone mercifully crushed their skull with a boulder. That is horrific. But it almost always ended in death. If the mob was angry enough that they didn't want the person to find relief in death, they would instead simply beat the trash out of them. They beat them with sticks, with their walking sticks, often leaving this person forever maimed. I mean, this is ugly, ugly stuff that Paul and Silas are enduring. Don't read past this too quickly. This is brutal, painful. This is what happens to Paul and Silas. They beat them until their anger is subdued. And then they throw them into prison, chained to a wall, no medical care, not even a Tylenol. Now look what happens. Even while their bruises are still swelling, while blood is still running down their face, while their diaphragm ached from blows across their stomach and their ribs are cracked while every breath in and out is filled with pain. Look, look, look. Do you see it? An utterly unexpected thing occurs. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Can you imagine this moment? 
bleeding, aching in a dark hole of a jail cell, chained to a wall with mice scurrying about over, over the sounds of dripping wa dirty, nasty water and chattering of mice. You hear Paul and Silas in the darkness singing, reverberating off the stone walls. Can you hear it? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. What we hear is joy, worship. Joy not based on circumstances, but joy born in Christ. Not, not a pursuit of the American dream of comfort, of safety, but a fruit of the Spirit in them. What we hear is joy. Uh, a kind of joy that destroys the lies of the enemy. A kind of joy that changes the temperature of the room. But the verse doesn't actually end there. The full verse says this. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Did you see that? The prisoners were listening. They weren't yet singing, but the praises of Paul and Silas were changing them too. Uh, don't miss this. Pa Paul began a journey free and annoyed. Uh, God's great work in him comes when he is imprisoned, but rejoicing. Often our most life-giving transformative praise will come in the darkest holes. Scripture promises that God is near the humble. He's near the brokenhearted. He is near the rejected and unwanted. The presence of God is often more deeply felt in the ditch than in the cathedral. Let's skip ahead a little bit to verse 29 and see what happens to the jail guard. It says this, and he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The power of light is only seen in the darkness. Yes, it is easy to rejoice when things are good, when life is good, when things are going well, when relationships are easy and finances are healthy and the sun is shining. Everyone's in a good mood, right? Everyone's posting on Instagram, hashtag blessed. 
But what about the dark holes of life? What about when there's more brokenness, more aching, more disappointment? When, when, when fear begins to arise in our soul, when, when, when our marriages collapse, when business deals fall through, when careers take a turn, what happens then? The greatest witness we have is not Jesus will make your life good. I do believe that following Jesus will bring you greater peace more relational health, more pleasure, and even more happiness. But our world is oversaturated with mountaintop sales pitch. Sales pitches that claim to cleanse our lives and this earth of all unpleasant things. A promise no one has yet been able to fulfill. But the greater question the greater hope is this. What do we do in the darkness? Jesus changes the darkness. It should not be lost on us that Jesus calls us to be light. Light assumes that there is a consuming darkness in this world. And when we as people of joy choose to praise in the midst of darkness, our voices rise like radiant beams giving sight and vision and hope to a dark and broken world. By this, I, I, don't, I don't mean that we're that we're not called to that we're called to be disembodied creatures that that ignore the pain of this world that that we act as if um, our objective is to ignore the pain of this world as as if it's some illusion, but instead to breathe in deeply the aching of cracked ribs, to allow the blood to run down your forehead, to feel it all. Why? Because Christ felt it all. He did not come to this world to tell you that none of this matters. Uh, none of this life matters. He came embodied as a statement to say that all of this matters. All of this is true. All of this is important. But there's also something even more true. That there's a God, a Father, who is good and able. And you are a dearly loved child. You see, weeping and worship make great roommates. The Psalms, the Hebrew book of worship songs is, is filled with weeping and worship. It's something we struggle to maintain as a practice in our modern faith today. So, so I wanted to end a bit differently than normal. I want to invite you to settle into a dark jail cell, into the dark jail cell you're wrestling with today. I want to invite you to breathe in the pain of this life, of this past season, to be present, to not run from the fear or the hurt or the anger, but to give yourself permission to feel it, to be honest with yourself, with God. See, only when we fully feel the brokenness of this world can we experience the goodness of God. Think about what it is, what that pain is. I'm sure you have a list, a list of heartaches, 
today, a list of heartaches you've ignored over a season, a list of heartaches that sometimes make it hard to breathe, a list of heartaches you've ignored believing that Christians only smile. And I want to invite you to just be, to remember, to feel it. As we close, I, I, I want to invite you to learn from, maybe even join in with a band called Ren Collective. They, they wrote the song after experiencing a great tragedy themselves. And I think the best way for us to learn how we allow weeping and worshiping to live together, to, to live out a deep, rich type of joy, is to see it modeled for us. So in a minute, we're going to play the song. And as it plays, maybe you'll eventually be able to sing with them. Maybe you just need to sit. Maybe you'll just pray the words as they sing them. Maybe you just need to allow their words to be yours or, or, or to allow the spirit to groan on your behalf, as scripture says. Whatever it is, know this. The goodness of God the joy of the Spirit in you is understood most fully, experienced most vigorously in the darkest corners of our soul, in the greatest pains, when we allow ourselves to both weep and worship. There we find a way to express God-honoring, life-giving, world-transforming joy. Yeah. 
faith, yes, I still season and the season to come that our greatest witness will be birthed from joy in darkness, worshiping while we weep. See, when we worship, when we live with joy, believing this, that God is good, that he is able, and I'm a dearly loved child, that, brothers and sisters, will illuminate a broken and dark world like a shining city sitting on a hill. That 
will transform the world we find ourselves in. That will be the greatest witness you can offer your family, your friends of who Jesus is. So may we be a people grounded in the truth of God's goodness seen in the cross. May we be a people who change the temperature of the rooms we enter into with joy. May we be a people who worship with joy. And may we be a people whose witness is most clearly seen when there's joy even in the dark cells of our lives. Love you guys. Let me pray with you. Lord, there is so much aching in this world, so much pain, so much brokenness, and so much darkness. And Lord, it can be overwhelming for us. But Lord, we know that you were able to handle all these things. Lord, we know that you weep with us. And Lord, just as the song says, Lord, we pray that you would turn our lament into a love song, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would be able to rejoice in you, that we would be as a shining hill, a city on a hill, shooting the light of joy into a dark and broken world. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.